History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to episode 11, Tales of the Conquistadors, part 4. In our last episode, we took a stroll down memory lane with some personal top 10 lists and heard from Mr. Winston Churchill. But in the episode before that, we left Montezuma in the not-so-awesome care of Hernan Cortez, who was not only appalled by the indigenous religious practice of sacrificing humans, but also in a little bit of trouble with his Spanish overseers back in Cuba. Cortez and his men were on edge in Tenochtitlan, fearing both the city full of increasingly angry Aztec people and the incoming Spanish troops meant to put a stop to Cortez's exploits. Here we go. A man named Panfilo Narvaez commanded the incoming Spanish troops, and it wasn't long before he began to make some good progress. Thanks to information provided by some Cortez deserters, Narvaez learned of the tiny Spanish garrison at Veracruz. Very quickly, Montezuma himself sent gifts from Tenochtitlan, and just as quickly, Narvaez sent word back to the emperor that Cortez and his men were nothing but thieves and vagabonds who were actually there without the permission of the Spanish crown. Narvaez was here, he told Montezuma, to enact justice and to put Cortez and all his men to the sword. At the very least, Cortez's group of Spaniards were to be captured, brought back to Cuba or Spain, and executed. As you would imagine, Montezuma was elated. Having been the unwilling guest of Cortez and his men for quite a while, the Aztec leader was delighted to find that Narvaez's force was almost three times the size of Cortez's force, 1,300 men and lots of cannons. This was his chance to possibly free himself and throw his captors out of his city. Orders were sent telling all the natives in the area to give Narvaez as much assistance as he needed to overcome Cortez. Montezuma apparently didn't have a great poker face, though, as Cortez almost immediately picked up on his good mood. Montezuma just played coy and said that he was feeling really good that day, better than he had been feeling in a long time, actually. Cortez was a little suspicious, as at this point he hadn't heard any news of that incoming Spanish fleet. Montezuma decided that it was time to let him in on the news. Montezuma said something to the effect of, I'm just happy that reports have come to me about a big fleet of 18 or so ships, lots of men, lots of those horse things you like to ride around on, and lots of those cannon things have just landed on the coast. Now you don't have to build any ships, but you can just leave with your Spanish friends. Great news, right? Yeah, not so much for Senor Hernan Cortez. He knew something was up. He knew this wasn't any kind of relief mission. If he went with those new Spanish troops, the only way he would be leaving would, be, would most likely be in chains. Cortez put on a brave face, though, saying, Yeah, yeah, no, this is so good for me, Montezuma. But secretly, he, he was worried. He gathered all of his men, gave them some goodies, and made them promise that they wouldn't do anything against him. Bernal Diaz tells us that none of the men knew this Narvaez guy, and so Cortez was safe with them, and thank you very much for the nice presents. The officers and soldiers that had come here with him would stay loyal to him. Cortez then sent a letter to Narvaez, hoping to find out what Narvaez's mission was. He was also worried that if the natives discerned any kind of enmity between the two Spanish groups, then there would be rebellion. Cortez also hoped that Narvaez didn't try to free Montezuma, as that would lead, again, to rebellion in the city. Narvaez, it seems, wasn't going to play ball. Diaz tells us that Narvaez mocked Cortez when reading the letter to his men, and some of his men wanted to march immediately on Tenochtitlan and put Cortez and his Spanish forces to death. 
Others of Narvaez's men weren't so sure. They not only saw the gold that Cortez had sent with the letter, but also remembered that some of Cortez's men were their friends. Now keep in mind that Bernal Diaz is firmly in Cortez's camp and has every reason to speak highly of him. According to Bernal Diaz, Narvaez marched over to the town of Sempoala and moved in. As soon as he got there, he confiscated all of the native chief's gold, cotton, and other valuables. When Cortez learned of this, and that Narvaez had imprisoned some of his men, Cortez and his forces determined to strike first. He left Pedro de Alvarado in charge of a garrison of 83 soldiers in Tenochtitlan. Montezuma was also to continue to be guarded at all times. Cortez and his forces set off toward Narvaez in Cempoala. Peace talks between the two Spanish camps were not fruitful. Cortez leaned on his native allies a little and was happily supplied with some native soldiers and some long native-made lances with which to fight off Narvaez's cavalry. According to Diaz, Cortez offered a bounty of 3,000 pesos to the first man who laid hands on Panfilo Narvaez, 2,000 pesos to the second man, and 1,000 pesos to the third man to do so. Here is where Cortez's confidence is displayed. After issuing the marching orders for the attack, Cortez told his officers, quote, I am fully aware that Narvaez has four times the men we have, but most of them are not accustomed to arms. A great number are adverse to their general, many are sick, and we shall fall upon them unawares. All opposition on their part will be fruitless, and I am fully confident the Almighty will grant us victory. Narvaez's men also know they will lose nothing by the change, and would fare better in every respect with us than with him. Thus, gentlemen, after God, our lives and honor entirely depend upon the valor of our arms. The praise of future generations lies in our hands, and it is more honorable to die on the field of battle than to lead a life of dishonor." A bit of a flair for the dramatic, certainly, but also a speech that hints at Cortez acknowledging that he knew, on some level, that he was destined to be a historical figure that would be talked about and studied long after he was gone. Now keep in mind that this speech of his was written down by Bernal Diaz decades after the fact, so Diaz's recounting of this speech might be a little off, as again, Diaz has a vested interest in making his commanding officer look good as much as possible. Diaz himself states that he was counted among the youngest group of men, which begs the question of how he knew what was written in the commands of the officers, but I digress. One thing that I thought was particularly interesting is the use of what Diaz calls a watchword among the two groups of Spanish forces so they could know who their comrades in arms were. Espiritu Santo, Espiritu Santo, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, was the call of Cortez's men, while Narvaez's troops called out Santa Maria, Santa Maria, Saint Mary, Saint Mary. Anyway, Cortez's men were split into several groups. Bernal Diaz and his group were tasked with capturing Narvaez's cannons. In the dead of night, Cortez's forces made their way to Cempoala. One semi-stealthy river crossing later, and Cortez's men burst from the jungle and attacked Narvaez's forces. Diaz's group rushed the cannons so quickly that the gunners were only able to fire over their attackers' heads. The cannons were quickly captured, but couldn't really be used as Narvaez and his troops held the high ground from a nearby temple and rained arrows and musket fire down on the artillery pieces. Cortez's forces rushed the temple where Narvaez fought, hoping to capture him. Diaz says that in the midst of the fighting, Narvaez cried out, quote, Assist me, O blessed virgin, I am a dead man. One of my eyes has been thrust out. End quote. 
and just like that, the fighting was mostly over. Pockets of resistance held out for a little while longer, but all were subdued fairly quickly. Narvaez, who had indeed lost an eye in the battle, thanks to one of those long lances, was captured. By daybreak, all fighting had ceased, and Narvaez's men were being treated for their wounds. Most would end up coming over to Cortez's side following the battle, and it wasn't long before Cortez and his newly bolstered ranks would head back to Tenochtitlan. Diaz tells us that Cortez's army had grown from a few hundred soldiers to 1,300 men, 96 horses, 80 crossbowmen, 80 musketeers, and 2,000 native Tlaxcalan warriors. Cortez and his soldiers returned to a city on the verge of chaos, but for that story we have to backtrack a little bit. The book, The Native Conquistador, gives us some information on what happened. Apparently before Cortez left to go deal with Narvaez, Montezuma had informed him that the natives would be celebrating the solemn feast of Toxcatl, a feast to their god Tetzcalipoca. Montezuma requested Cortez's permission for the sacred feast to be held. Cortez told Montezuma that he would inform his men so they wouldn't be alarmed, and besides, it was their country and the natives could do as they wished. Cortez apparently missed the irony behind the exchange, especially since the Spaniards had essentially put a stop to human sacrifice, the main avenue of worship for the Aztec people in Tenochtitlan. On the eve of the festival, the people of Tenochtitlan began their celebrations. They lit paper lanterns, danced, and made music, and hundreds of the important people came out into the town square dressed in their finest jewels and golden ornaments. No weapons or armor were in sight. This was a night of celebration, after all. Now, the native conquistador tells us that some people from the neighboring tribe of Tlaxcalteca just so happened to be in the city and remembered other celebrations where their people had been slaughtered and sacrificed by the thousands to appease the gods. Seeing an opportunity, these Tlaxcaltecans went to the Spanish commanding officer, Pedro de Alvarado, and told him that this whole celebration thing was just a ruse and that they were really gathering there over there in the square to try and kill all of you Spaniards. Alvarado listened to them, but determined to see everything with his own eyes first before doing anything. The native conquistador tells us that Alvarado went to the nearby temple and, quote, although he saw that they were all unarmed and not prepared for combat, he coveted the gold that they wore and placed ten armed Spaniards at each door. Then he entered the courtyard and temple with some other Spaniards, killed almost everyone who was inside, and took what they had on them. At this point, the Mexica would surely have killed all the Spaniards without letting anyone escape had Montezuma not calmed their anger. End quote. Yeah, wow. Bad move there, Alvarado. Really bad move. As if you haven't already been simply handed enough gold, jewels, and other shiny things. Now you're cowering with your troops in the palace because you have lots of natives intent on murderizing you. You also have to wonder how much longer Montezuma will be able to keep calming his people down. Surely by now they were on the edge of revolt. Cortez and his newly enlarged army re-entered Tenochtitlan on June 24, 1520. According to Diaz, the city was essentially deserted. No one greeted them. No one was out in the street. Montezuma finally greeted them once they came up to the palace where he was under a form of house arrest. Montezuma tried to congratulate Cortez on his victory over Narvaez, but Cortez ignored him and made arrangements for his new troops to be quartered in the apartment complex-type barracks with the rest of his troops. Finally, Cortez turned his attention to the reports of rebellion in Tenochtitlan. Reports came that Huitzilopochtli had issued Order 66 
in order to try to kill the Spaniards and rescue the emperor. They had even been commanded to remove the cross and the statue of the Holy Virgin, but according to Diaz, they were unable to, which amazed everyone, European and native alike. At some point in all this, the natives had apparently determined that the Spanish were actually not going to leave and return to Spain. No, the natives figured out that the Spanish were here to stay, and that they were going to be bringing even more of these European invaders with them. Once the Spanish realized that the natives had realized this, Alvarado determined that this was more than enough justification for his murderous conduct in Cortez's absence. Cortez pressed Alvarado more, asking why in the world he slaughtered all of those nobles while they were feasting. Alvarado tried to tell him that some of the natives were planning to murder all the Spanish as soon as the feast was over. Cortez interrupted him, reminding him that the natives had specifically asked permission to celebrate their feast and that Alvarado had given them that permission. Alvarado was caught. Diaz tells us that some of the soldiers that didn't like Alvarado claimed that their commanding officer had conducted these killings out of a greedy desire to get more shiny sparkling stuff off the bodies of the dead native chiefs. Diaz claims not to believe this motive to be true, however, and he accepts that Alvarado did this as an intimidation tactic to keep the natives in line and subdued. Fortunately, Montezuma had been there to keep things from getting bloody, but his influence seems to have finally been exhausted. The next day, the Mexica in the city finally attacked the Spanish. Native warriors attacked from the nearby city of Tlacupa and destroyed one of the causeways into the city. Spanish patrols were sent out, but were quickly attacked by what Diaz calls a vast body of Mexica warriors who attacked on the ground and from the rooftops of the buildings in the city. The patrols steadily were pushed back toward the royal palace and the apartment complex where the other Spaniards were busy repulsing another furious assault. Lances, arrows, and stones were answered by muskets, crossbows, and deadly cannon fire. In spite of the technological superiority of the Spanish guns, the natives had the advantage of sheer numbers. For every native that fell, another quickly and relentlessly took his place, so much so that the Spanish were unable to gain an inch of ground. Stones and lances covered the ground where the Spanish stood, and the assault lasted well into the night. In the brief respite before dawn, the Spanish tried to regroup and tend to their wounded. But dawn came too quickly. Cortez hoped to lead a charge to break through the enemy lines, but couldn't. Diaz tells us, quote, The Mexicans, it seems, had also determined to do their utmost, and they not only fought with uncommon bravery, but came in overwhelming numbers, so that every instant they poured in fresh men to the attack. Indeed, 10,000 Trojan Hectors and as many Rolands would in vain have tried to break through the enemy's ranks." End quote. So that's a lot of warriors. Too many even for Hector of Troy and Roland of France, two great warriors in their own right, to overcome. Musket volleys and cannon fire seemed to have little effect. The Spanish were experiencing an unending wave of humanity intent on getting rid of them. Every dead native warrior seemed to just push the Mexica into more and more of a, friend, of a frenzy. Even when the Spanish were able to push the natives back, it was just a ruse designed to draw the Spaniards out and kill them away from the main body of European troops. Trying to set fire to the surrounding houses did nothing. Veteran Spanish soldiers who survived this battle would later tell Diaz that they had never before witnessed such ferocious fighting in all the wars they had seen in Europe. So that's awesome. Nothing the Spanish did seemed to make any difference at all. 
The natives were relentless, hurling stones, spears, and insults in an unending barrage of physical and mental attacks. Diaz claims that the natives continually screamed out that the Spanish would all be sacrificed to their gods, along with some other truly gruesome things that the natives would do to their bodies following the sacrifice. After two days of this, the Spanish decided that they needed to attempt to try to escape. Diaz says that they decided to build moving war towers that they would use to break out of the siege at their apartment complex. He describes their plan of attack like this, quote, These we had strongly put together of wood and were so constructed that under each of them, 25 of our men could stand to move them along. These towers contained loopholes from which our heavy gun could be fired. Besides that, there was space enough for a number of musketeers and crossbowmen. At the side of these towers marched a strong body of musketeers and crossbowmen, as also the whole of our horse, who were from time to time to charge the enemy at full gallop. End quote. Okay, so a few questions. How big were these apartment rooms that they could build full-on siege towers that could fit 25 soldiers underneath? Also, where and how were they getting enough wood to make these towers? Anyway, we are told that the towers were built, and at dawn on the third day of fighting, the Spanish pressed toward the Templo Mayor. The fighting was severe, Spaniard and Spanish horses alike being severely injured along the way. Eventually, they reached the temple and abandoned their, by this point, almost completely broken siege towers, and ferociously fought up the steps to the apex of the temple. Once there, the priests of Tetzcalipuca and Huitzilopochtli now joined the fray, but could do little to prevent the Christian Spaniards from setting fire to the chapels of the two deities. Seeing their places of worship go up in flames seems to have incited the natives to fight even harder than before. The Spanish were forced to abandon the temple and retreat back to their apartment complex to regroup. Night fell, and with it, a repose for the Spanish to tend the wounded again, bury the dead, and deliberate over what to do to get out of this mess. Nothing could be agreed upon, save to try to sue for peace, but any hopes of that were quickly dashed the next morning, when even more ferocious attacks started with the morning light of the fourth day of fighting. Diaz tells us, that it was at this time that Cortez attempted to get Montezuma to talk to the people. The people had been demanding his release after all. Maybe he could help. Montezuma wasn't buying it, though. He had been a prisoner for too long. According to Diaz, the emperor exclaimed, quote, Why does Malinche now turn to me? To me, who am tired of life and who could wish never again to hear his name mentioned, for it is he who has plunged me into all of this misery. End quote. Montezuma refused to speak to the people, telling his captors, quote, I will neither see nor hear anything more of this man. I put no longer any faith in his deceitful words, his promises, and his specious lies. End quote. He goes on saying, quote, Alas, for all this, it is now too late. I am convinced that the Mexicans, whatever my wishes might be, will not grant any secession of arms. They have already raised another cazique to the throne and are fully determined that none of you shall leave this place alive. For myself, I am convinced you will every one of you meet with your death in this city. End quote. Wow, tell us how you really feel, Emperor. Eventually, however, Montezuma was persuaded to speak to his people. He climbed to the top of the apartment under cover of Spanish shields and began to speak with them. The moment the people saw Montezuma was addressing them, the combat ceased. Montezuma told the people that the Spanish were going to leave the city, and that he wanted them to stop fighting. The people told Montezuma that they had raised up a new king, 
and that the gods had demanded that they kill the Spanish. As Montezuma was talking with his people, the fighting had died down somewhat, and the Spanish shield-bearers had lowered their guard and their shields. Diaz tells us what happened next. Quote, Unfortunately, the hostilities immediately again commenced, and before it could be prevented, he, meaning Montezuma, was struck by an arrow and three stones from a sling, by which he was wounded in the arm, leg, and in his head, so that the unhappy monarch was forced to be carried back to his apartment. We were immediately going to bandage up his wounds and begged of him to take something strengthening, but he refused everything, and contrary to all expectation, we soon heard that he had expired. End quote. The native conquistador has a slightly different version of these events. That source claims that instead of having a nice, calm talk with his people, Montezuma instead began to reprimand them. The Mexica didn't take too kindly to this and began to insult their former king by calling him a coward and a traitor to his homeland. In both versions of these stories, Montezuma is struck by a thrown rock and dies from his injuries. Some native sources say that the Spanish actually murderized the emperor by stabbing him in the back. In any case, the monarch was dead, and the natives were again furious with the situation. Diaz records their words, saying, quote, As soon as the Mexicans espied the dead body of their monarch, they broke out into loud lamentations and moaned bitterly, but still continued the attack upon us, and that with increased fury. Now, they hollered out, we will make you pay dearly for the death of our monarch and the insult you have offered to our gods. Is it now you beg peace of us? Only come out, and we will show you what terms we mean to make with you. End quote. When the Spanish tried to offer Montezuma's body for burial, the natives replied, quote, Don't trouble yourselves about his burial, but think of your own graves, for in a couple of days not a single one of you will be left alive. End quote. The Spanish were getting desperate. Their supplies were running low and their powder was almost gone. Peace, it seemed, was never an option. Escaping the city was the only way to save their lives. In preparation, the Spanish redoubled their efforts in combat. Diaz describes them killing great numbers of enemies, hoping that the natives would need a chance to regroup so the Spaniards could slip out. He actually uses the phrase mowed down in my translation. The Spanish loaded up as much of the gold and jewels and shiny stuff as they could and spread it out between themselves, their horses, and some of their native allies. Almost 700,000 pesos, which is a lot of money both then and now. That was all that Cortez would officially claim to carry away anyway. After the official tally was completed, Cortez allowed his men to take as much of the remainder of the treasure as they could conveniently carry with them so that, quote, this treasure may not fall into the hands of these Mexican dogs, end quote. You mean the treasure they gave to you, right, Mr. Cortez? His men stuffed their pockets, and then they waited for nightfall. Midnight, July 1st, 1520. All is dark and quiet in the city. A gentle rain falls on the roofs of the sleeping city, and a mist hangs in the air, a warm night that could be peaceful under different circumstances. But for the Spanish, it must have been nerve-wracking. Quietly, the Europeans moved west toward one of the few undamaged causeways connecting the city to the mainland. High stealth rolls meant that they were making good headway. If they could just avoid being spotted, then maybe, just maybe, they'd be able to slip out of the city untouched. Frankly, it was a miracle that they hadn't been spotted yet. But it was not to be. Right as the first groups of soldiers reached the causeway, loud war cries pierced the night air. Hundreds of the canoes 
seemed to materialize out of thin air on the lake. Horses slipped and fell into Lake Texcoco, upsetting the little pontoon bridge the Spanish had managed to craft for their escape. Arrows and lances flew, both from the shore and from the canoes. Soldiers and horses alike were wounded or drowned. Stones crashed down on them. Chaos reigned. The Spanish guns and crossbows were soaked with lake water and were essentially useless. Some of the cannons had even been taken. Each Spaniard knew that to be captured was to be sacrificed to the Aztec gods. Finally, after what seemed like a lifetime of fighting, the Spanish were able to make it to the far shore. Diaz describes Pedro Alvarado, the captain who had massacred the nobles earlier in this episode, as staggering ashore, limping, heavily wounded, wet, and covered in dripping blood. This night came to be known as La Noche Triste, the sad night, on account of the great loss of life and treasure suffered by the Spanish forces while fleeing the city. Those who survived were greatly saddened by the loss of most of their horses, as well as the great number of Spaniards who had drowned in the lake from the weight of all the gold they had pocketed on the way out. They had no gunpowder and no cannons. Harried continually by their enemy, the allied Tlaxcalans were eventually able to guide the Spanish in the direction of the city of Tlaxcala. Finally, after days of marching, they arrived. Now what? Well, the first thing would be to allow his beleaguered troops to heal. Most of the gold, jewels, and shiny things that the Spanish had tried to bring with them from Tenochtitlan had been lost on the way to Tlaxcala. Getting that back would be a high priority. Next up would be to see what could be done about getting more reinforcements, either Spanish, which were unlikely, or indigenous peoples. Cortez already was friends with the Tlaxcalans. Who else could he get to come to his side, either through force or by treaty? Cortez began what could be called his revenge tour. For the next few months, he and his soldiers and native allies marched around Mexico to all the places where Spanish soldiers had been killed. In those villages, they captured prisoners and branded the ones they took as slaves. Some villages, chafing under the new regime that had arisen in Tenochtitlan, which we'll get to in a minute, actually sent messages to Cortez asking for the Spanish to help them throw out their Aztec oppressors. Other Spanish reinforcements arrived and were absorbed into Cortez's ranks. The soldiers that had arrived under Narvaez were eventually put on ships and sent back to Spain, along with representatives from Cortez to plead his case to the Spanish crown. Essentially, that pleading the case to the Spanish crown was a mission to legitimize all of Cortez's actions in the New World and to make sure that the conquistador did not get in trouble when he returned to establish Spanish territory. While Cortes is doing all of this, a new ruler was installed as emperor of the Aztecs in Tenochtitlan. His name was Cuitlahuac, and he was one of the younger brothers of Montezuma. He was one of the late emperor's advisors who advised Montezuma not to allow these Europeans into Tenochtitlan. His reign as emperor was characterized by his continued antagonism toward the Spanish and by the brevity of his reign. The native conquistador says that he reigned only 40 days, while other sources put his reign at lasting 80 days. In either case, he was killed by something that would go on to claim the lives of countless Native Americans over the next few centuries, smallpox. Now, smallpox is a nasty disease. With evidence of its existence present on ancient Egyptian mummies, smallpox has thankfully been eradicated on planet Earth, according to the World Health Organization. Eradicated in 1979, the disease was horrid, Look up information about it at your own risk. Smallpox and other diseases were especially lethal to the indigenous populations of the New World who had no immunity to such diseases. 
there is really no way to tell how many deaths smallpox and other diseases caused after their introduction to the New World, but estimates in the millions are not uncommon. With Quetzalcoatl's death, a new emperor was crowned, Quatemoc. As the smallpox that killed the previous emperor was ravaging Tenochtitlan, Quatemoc ascended to the throne sometime in February 1521. We believe that he was somewhere in the vicinity of 25 years old when he came to power, but since he doesn't appear in historical sources until he actually becomes emperor, it's hard to say his exact age. In any case, Quatemoc continued to fight against the Spanish. When he called for assistance from the other indigenous peoples, however, few came. Meanwhile, Cortes was determined to capture Tenochtitlan. One of the biggest weaknesses of his forces was a lack of support for his foot soldiers, so he ordered the construction of 13 brigantines, or ships, that he would use to take control of the vast lake surrounding the Aztec capital city. While these ships were being built, he continued his plan of slowly encircling the Aztec capital. Any attack on the city would have to be done over the causeways that connected the city to the outer shores of Lake Texcoco. In April 1521, Cortes and his men began subjugating the villages surrounding Tenochtitlan in preparation for the attack on the main Aztec city. They were accompanied, as always, by thousands and thousands of indigenous allies. Shortly after, the Aztecs were able to repel Spanish attacks on the aqueduct that brought water into the city. But attacks on Tenochtitlan itself were not far behind, and by May 1521, the siege of Tenochtitlan had begun. The 13 brigantines were able to keep supplies moving between the forces that surrounded Lake Texcoco, and were also able to repel the thousands of canoes that Cuauhtémoc sent out to harass them. The Spanish were able to make good progress up the causeways connecting the city to the shore, but would retreat back to their camps at night. Naturally, this meant that the Aztec forces were simply coming up and reclaiming any lost territory, forcing the Spanish to have to fight to regain it. Soon enough, though, the Spaniards corrected this mistake and began to actually occupy the strong points that they had captured during the day. Slowly and painfully, the Spanish were able to make some small advances toward Tenochtitlan. Keep in mind that the city at this point was probably still one of the larger cities in the world, even with a smallpox epidemic wrecking havoc on its population. Also, Cuauhtémoc's ability to resupply the city through the use of canoes outrunning the Spanish ships played a vital role in the city's ability to resist the Spanish for so long. Any captured supplies were redistributed to Spanish forces, and eventually the Spanish were able to capture or destroy enough canoes and, small, and the small Aztec ships sent to defend them that the Aztecs stopped bringing in supplies to the city so openly. The Aztecs were not going to meekly cower in the city, however. Diaz describes days of intense fighting along with harrowing consequences for any Spaniard captured. The fortunate ones were killed outright. For those not so fortunate, a terrible ordeal awaited them. Diaz describes one particular scene after a battle, saying, quote, All in a moment, the large drum of Huitzilopochtli again resounded from the summit of the temple, accompanied by all the hellish music of shell trumpets, horns, and other instruments. The sound was truly dismal and terrifying, but still more agonizing was all this to us when we looked up and beheld how the Mexicans were mercilessly sacrificing to their idols our unfortunate companions who had been captured in Cortez's flight across the opening. We could plainly see the platform with the chapel in which those cursed idols stood, how the Mexicans had adorned the heads of the Spaniards with feathers, 
and compelled their victims to dance round the god Huitzilopochtli. End quote. Now, what follows in Diaz's account is a description that comes straight out of a horror movie. I'm not going to go into it here, as it truly is some gruesome stuff. But for those interested, it is in chapter 152 of Diaz's account. The Spanish were understandably horrified. Diaz describes the agonizing feeling of being close enough to see the victims, but entirely unable to do anything to help them. He says that each of the men, quote, thanked God from the bottom of his soul for his great mercy in having rescued us from such a horrible death, end quote. Now, take just a moment and imagine being in that position. Can you? That would be truly horrific to be able to see and hear what's going on to your fellow countrymen and to be utterly helpless to stop it. I, I can't imagine what that must have felt like. While the Spanish were in a state of shock at all of this, the Aztecs yelled out threats to them, saying, quote, Only look up at the temple. Such will be the end of you all. This our gods have often promised us. Cuauhtémoc sent the remains of the fallen Spaniards into the surrounding countryside, ordering all of the indigenous tribes allied with Cortes to immediately flip to his side, or he would march on their villages and destroy them. Relentless attacks from the Aztecs were renewed night and day upon the Spanish forces. Each night, Cuauhtémoc ordered the sacrifice of more Spaniards to Huitzilopochtli and Tetzcalipoca. To the Spaniards' dismay, some of their native allies abandoned them and simply went home. Slowly, the Spanish were able to take control of the entirety of Lake Texcoco and were slowly, agonizingly moving closer and closer to the city, center of the city. Days had turned into weeks at this point, and even Diaz seems to grow tired of writing of, stra- of the strange monotony of constant attacks from the city. But things were changing. Thanks to the Spaniards' ability to successfully blockade the city with the ships on the lake and their men on the causeways, famine began to grip Tenochtitlan. The smallpox epidemic was joined by the spread of dysentery, thanks to the dirty water the Aztecs were forced to drink. Starvation soon followed. Cortes offered peace terms to Cuauhtémoc without success. Finally, in August 1521, the Spanish and their allies were able to break into Tenochtitlan. Cortes ordered all three of his divisions to march at the same time into the city, pushing for the main square of the city. The Aztec defenders assembled in the main square to, to defend their temples and idols. Diaz claims that his company of men saw some of the most vicious fighting at the hands of the priests, but were ultimately able to scale the Templo Mayor where the shrines to Huitzilopochtli and Tetzcalipoco were located and set fire to the idols. The native conquistador states that, quote, Cortes and Ixtilzochtli arrived at the same time and rushed the idol. Cortes grabbed the golden mask inlaid with precious stones that the idol was wearing. Ixtilzochtli chopped off the head of the idol, whom he had worshipped as his god just a few years before, end quote. Houses were burnt all over the city. Fighting continued in the streets. The palaces standing in the city were destroyed. More efforts of peace were sent to Cuauhtémoc, but none succeeded, and finally the young emperor was captured trying to flee the city. On August 13, 1521, the Aztecs surrendered to Cortés. Those remaining Aztec warriors and civilians fled the city, mostly due to their continued slaughter at the hands of their former neighbors even after the surrender was announced. After 93 long days of siege, the Aztec Empire had fallen to the combined might and resilience of the Spanish and their indigenous allies. 
So what happened next? In short, the Spanish would transform Tenochtitlan into today's Mexico City and would use these conquered lands as a springboard for further exploration of the Americas from California to South America. The indigenous allies that proved so pivotal to Spanish victory were subjugated and assimilated into the early Spanish colonial system, which didn't work out well for them, to say the least. During a Spanish expedition to Honduras in 1525, Cortes executed Cuauhtémoc after Cortes was told that the deposed Aztec ruler was plotting to kill him. Diaz states that the execution was unjust and that Cortes suffered from insomnia and guilt because of it. Cortes himself would go on the aforementioned expedition to Honduras before returning to Spain and being made the Marquis de Valle de Oaxaca, one of the wealthiest regions of New Spain. He then returned to Mexico and spent some time exploring Baja California. In 1541, he returned again to Spain and, unable to obtain an audience with the Spanish Emperor Charles V, finally just forced his way onto the royal carriage. When the Emperor asked him who he was, Cortes is supposed to have proudly stated, quote, I am a man who has given you more provinces than your ancestors left you cities. End quote. Never able to return to the heights of fame and fortune following his military victories, Cortes died on December 2, 1547, at the age of 62. Our good friend Bernal Diaz del Castillo, who was one of the main sources of information for this podcast series, was handsomely rewarded for his service. In 1541, he settled in Guatemala and was made a city governor in 1551. In 1568, he finished his Historia Verdadera de la Conquista de la Nueva España, detailing his service to the crown and the creation of New Spain, and 451 years later contributed heavily to the podcast you are now listening to. Diaz died in January 1584. The story of the Spanish conquest of the New World is one crafted by the point of a sword, the tip of the arrow, the smoke of the cannon, the specter of disease, and the labor of indigenous slaves. It is a story of people groups who were subjected to the rule of empire, of children being separated from their parents, of the subversion of indigenous identity, and of local and traditional customs and ways of life discouraged and stamped out in favor of more European expressions of self and community. The Spanish Empire and the New World transformed Spain into an international economic powerhouse. The argument can be made that this in turn kick-started the French and British efforts into the popular new trend of colonialism. But all of that history, both the bad and the good, has at least a little bit of root in the expeditions and conquests of the early 1500s. Small tales that cast massive ripples in history. And that's where we'll end this episode and this series. This series was incredibly enlightening for me to have a chance to really dig into the heart of the story, no pun intended. But I must say that this is by no means the entire story. There are primary and secondary sources out there that can give you a much better version of events than I am able to in this podcast. And I would encourage you to check them out. In a world of new scholarship and fluid cultural interpretations of conquerors and the conquered, it is important to gain as many perspectives as possible. Special shout out to Project Gutenberg, where I was able to find the second volume of Bernal Diaz's work when my Kindle version ended in the middle of the story. Also, a special shout out to everyone who has listened, downloaded, and reviewed this podcast. I really appreciate all the support and could not thank you enough. If you haven't yet, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or want to tell me topics that you would like to hear on the show, 
you can always email me at historyontheside at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook and Instagram page out there as well. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for a brand new topic. Hope you learned something.